This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. In the market for small business insurance, State Farm agents can help you create a personalized plan that fits your business needs and budget. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. It's State of Ukraine from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep with NPR's best reporting on a war that's changing the world. There are two parts to sanctions on Russia. One is imposing them. The other is enforcing them, which may be the harder part. The U.S. asserts it just had a success. It indicted Konstantin Malyafev. He's the founder of an investment fund and chairman of a Russian media group. He's been under U.S. sanctions for years, accused of funding pro-Russian militant groups in Ukraine. I've been reading this indictment. And it's a lot. It says the Russian oligarch hired an American TV producer. This veteran producer is a man whose past employers included Fox News. He agreed to use his expertise running Russian TV operations. He allegedly also helped to buy TV networks that would spread the Russian point of view in Greece and in Bulgaria, with Malyafev's interest hidden. Malyafev also allegedly used a shell company to buy stock in a Texas bank corporation, and then he tried to get the money out when he was caught. Told you it's a lot. It's not clear how the United States would ever gain custody of the Russian tycoon that had just indicted, but Attorney General Merrick Garland says the U.S. did seize millions of dollars from bank accounts tied to him. It does not matter how far you sail your yacht. It does not matter how well you conceal your assets. It does not matter how cleverly you write your malware or hide your online activity. The Justice Department will use every available tool to find you, disrupt your plots, and hold you accountable. As Attorney General Merrick Garland. Now, the United States is also announcing further sanctions against Russia. They come after Russian troops withdrew from the Kiev suburbs, and left behind the bodies of many dead civilians. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid discussed the sanctions with Leila Fadl. So why these added sanctions now? You know, you mentioned Bucha, and, and this comes after just the gruesome reports that many of us saw in the past couple of days. The president himself described the situation earlier this week as a war crime, and he called for a trial to take place against Vladimir Putin. The Biden administration has viewed, viewed sanctions, I will say, you know, as a tool that they can escalate or de-escalate to put pressure on the Russian government as needed. And mm. they point to expectations that inflation could reach 20 percent. Um, so they feel like the, this is, you know, hurting the Russian economy. But the thing is, you know, to date, sanctions, even as done today in coordination with the European Union and G7 allies, have not actually stopped the war or the killing. And, and yesterday, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke to the UN Security Council, showing them images of dead bodies and challenging them all to do more. So what exactly are the new sanctions? Well, President Biden will be signing an executive order banning any new investment by Americans in Russia. But what I found most interesting in the package that the U.S. government rolled out today is that Putin's two adult daughters will be sanctioned, as well as members of Sergei Lavrov's family. He's Russia's foreign minister. There are also going to be additional sanctions on Russia's largest financial institution, Sperbank, and its largest private bank, Alpha Bank. These are full blocking sanctions that affect any assets that touch the U.S. financial 
financial system, no matter what currency that they're in. Um, Russia will also be prohibited from making any debt payments with funds under U.S. jurisdiction, which could force Russia into default. In total, a senior administration official told reporters this morning that they've now blocked about two-thirds of Russia's banking system. But there is still, however, a carve-out in all of this for energy. And I should note, you know, there has been a lot of pressure, especially on European powers that rely on Russian energy to cut off Russian oil, which is a major economic lifeline for Putin in the face of, you know, some of these atrocities we've seen. But to date, uh, the Europeans have not done that. Okay, so if these new sanctions are not going to stop the bloodshed, which are continuing, which is continuing in other parts of Ukraine, what is the Biden administration's goal here with this economic pain? You know, Leila, I think that is a a really important question. Before the war began, officials within the U.S. uh, Biden administration suggested that sanctions would be a deterrent. But as the violence has dragged on, the tone has changed. Uh, You know, today, even a senior administration official told reporters when we asked about sanctions being effective at stopping the war, that sanctions alone, he said, are never a standalone solution. Uh, Just this week, the U.S. announced an additional $100 million in defense aid to Ukraine, But I will say there is still, I think, a very interesting question about whether the economic pain ordinary Russians will feel in the long run as a result of these sanctions might have unintended detrimental consequences. Um, On a briefing call with reporters this morning, uh, the White House basically didn't have a clear answer to this question. They insist that sanctions can be turned up, turned down, depending on Putin's behavior. But officials say that the sanctions currently in place are projected to wipe out the last 15 years of economic gains in Russia. So there will undoubtedly be pain that ordinary Russians are feeling that will be impossible to revert instantaneously whenever this war ends and whenever sanctions and possibly come to an end. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid, thank you. My pleasure. U.S. and other sanctions, of course, are designed to drain the resources of the Russian state. At the same time, the U.S. wants to add to the resources of Ukraine. But what does it take to deliver weapons into a war zone? The logistics of war resemble the supply chain we use every day. Here are Adrian Ma and Stacey Vanek-Smith from The Indicator, NPR's daily economics podcast. When Vince Castillo was in Iraq doing combat logistics patrols, he says his responsibility was basically figuring out how to get the right stuff in the right quantity to the right place at the right time. I was an infantry officer, but uh, I guess that was the first time in my career where I started dabbling in logistics. He went on to become a logistics professor at The Ohio State University, where he studies things like online retail. Vince says the e-commerce supply chain provides a rough analogy for understanding how weapons are making their way into Ukraine. He says you could basically think about it as having three stages. In logistics lingo, these are called the first mile, the middle mile, and the last mile. So first up, the first mile. This is where stuff is being transported from a supplier to a manufacturer. Second up, the middle mile. This involves moving goods from the manufacturer to a distribution point, like a warehouse. And from there, number three, the final mile, this is where products go from that warehouse to the customer. So for the first mile of this military supply chain, Vince says, think of the military itself as the supplier of weapons. Whether it's uh, machine guns, rifles, body armor, anti-air, stinger missiles, the U.S. has stocks of weapons all over Europe. 
One of these weapons is called a javelin. It, it kind of looks like a bazooka because you, you hoist it on your shoulder. Uh, except the javelin fires a heat-seeking missile that can take out a tank. And the U.S. has committed thousands of these javelins to Ukraine. And Vince says these weapons were probably flown in bulk from somewhere in Europe to military bases of NATO members, countries along Ukraine's western border, places like Poland and Romania. And when they arrive at these places, that first mile part of the journey is complete. Next comes the middle mile. And for this leg of the journey, Vince says that shipment of javelins is likely crossing the border by ground, making its way to Ukrainian cities near the fighting. Any information about the timing and location of shipments, uh, it's all going to be classified to the maximum extent possible. When Vince was in Iraq, he says the shipments he escorted were these miles-long caravans of vehicles. Convoys that were comprised of anywhere from 20 up to maybe 50 or even 60 big rig trucks. In other words, a huge target for Russian tanks, planes, and helicopters. So ideally, you want to break it down into smaller shipments. Smaller convoys are a little bit more agile. Um, and if there's more of them, it can be like a game of whack-a-mole for Russia, and it can be harder to deal with. And if you want to protect your supply chain, you have to be able to whack back if you need to. Vince says this can be done by positioning armed soldiers along a route, soldiers who have javelins of their own, or stinger missiles, or other weapons. Of course, avoiding a firefight can also be good. And to that end, soldiers moving weapons can do a number of things to try and mask their movements. Things like taking different routes, varying the times at which you're traveling. Most of these convoys will likely be moving at night. And there's going to be fewer civilians on the road at night. So any movements would um, be less likely to expose civilians to being attacked as well. And so back to our hypothetical supply chain of javelins, let's say it has now made it safely to that middle mile city in Ukraine. The journey is not over yet. This cargo still has to complete the final mile of our supply chain. That final mile in the military combat zone is where the goods are going to reach uh, the soldiers who are actually going to be using them. This process is, is usually one of the most precarious because that's where you're closest to active combat. Big shipments get broken down into smaller ones, and then intelligence is used to decide what goes where. So there you go. The three-step journey of a Javelin missile. And that, hypothetically speaking, is how weapons are delivered into a war zone. But as this conflict drags on, there is a lingering question. Will it be enough? Or to put it in logistics terms, will enough of the right equipment get to the right place, into the right hands, in time? Stacey Vanek-Smith. Adrian Ma, NPR News. And this is State of Ukraine, NPR's best reporting on a war that is changing the world. Think of it as a breaking news live blog for your ear. Nina Kravinsky produced and Kelly Dickens edited this episode. I'm Steve Inskeep. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. 
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.